2: the world needs lots of different types of people, but it's set up now for a very specific type of person that really doesn't work for many people at all. It's like most people can cope in it, neurodivergent people really struggle in it, and a very narrow band of people thrive in it. And that narrow band of people, they don't look like most of us.
3: Hello, and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Webber. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and it completely turned my world upside down. I've been looking back at so much of my life, school, jobs, my relationships, all of it with this new lens, and it has been nothing short of overwhelming. I quickly discovered I was not the only woman to have this experience, and now I interview other women who, like me, discovered in adulthood they have ADHD and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. Okay, here we are at episode 142, in which I interview Vicki Quinn Fraser. Vicky is a writer and entrepreneur who teaches misfit small business owners how to write and self-publish amazing books. She is the creator of The Moxie Method, a framework for writing books with the power to change hearts, minds, and lives. Vicki is the author of How the Hell Do You Write a Book? And for the last 10 years, she has used The Moxie Method to take aspiring authors from blank page to book. We talk about some of the difficulties we face when it comes to getting started with large projects like book writing. And Vicki talks about some of her writing strategies and tools and tips for writers or aspiring writers with ADHD. We also talk about the trap of musterbating, and we discuss the nuances of motivation, inspiration, and momentum when you are neurodivergent, and how to use tiny beetle steps to get started. This was a delightful conversation. Really, really enjoyed this one, and I am sure you will too. Without further ado, here is my interview with Vicki. Welcome, Vicky. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. Thank you for being here.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I I love your podcast. It has been such an amazing, um, just source of just good stuff um, for me since I got my diagnosis. So, thank you.
3: <laughs> ah, I love that. So, how long ago were you diagnosed? I
2: think it was about a year ago that I got my um, official diagnosis from the psychiatrist. Wow,
3: okay, so that's pretty impressive in the u k right I mean the way I feel like the waiting list now is years long, even if you go in the private sector.
2: it really is, and it's about to become a whole um I was gonna say shit show my lads. So yes, of course, I don't know if you've seen, but we had an investigative journalism, yes thing, um, which I have not watched yet, but um, the fallout of which I know is just going to be um, some endless BS. So, um, but yeah, it's it's been, it's difficult. People, people wait years and I just got really lucky because in the area where I am, um, I got a referral from my GP through our right to choose system, which means that if there's a big waiting list on the NHS, you can get referred privately. Um, so I got really lucky with that. I got in before the rush, I guess.
3: Yeah, right. It feels like every country has their own shit show when it comes to not only diagnosis, but then the access to medication and where the costs lie. Like, it's fascinating to me, having grown up in Canada, and now being in the US where the medical system is a disaster, you know, the healthcare system is such a disaster. But there are ways, you know, in which the privatization of a lot of this stuff has been beneficial, I, you know, especially not beneficial, uh, because I feel like there's it, there's, you know, nothing really beneficial about two-tiered healthcare. But when you're talking about like speed and and impatience and all the stuff that comes around wanting to get your diagnosis as fast as possible, the U.S. is like, sure, we'll diagnose you. <laughs> uh, but you know, it's funny, like my husband, w- but with my kids, this is a totally, this is, I think this is the earliest I've ever had this kind of tangent, but just my husband When we had my kids diagnosed, they were both diagnosed with an online company and uh, it was like a full psych evaluation that was done remotely. And he was basically like, well, you're paying them. They'll tell you whatever you want to hear. And like he just planted that seed of doubt, right, which has always been there which I don't believe, but it's like, you know, it's, it's, I think it's definitely a question that should be out there. I think it's naive for us to avoid that. But at the same time, yeah, it's so, it's so frustrating. Anyway, let's not talk about that. I I haven't wanted to touch that expose with a 10 foot pole uh, (laughs) because it is so frustrating. Yeah. Um, Okay. So, so you were diagnosed about a year ago and you were 43, right? Is that what you said?
2: Yes, I am now 44. I was trying to work out earlier how old I was because I knew you were going to ask me that question. But I was like, I am. <laughs> yes, I was 43. <laughs> it is so weird. Like, is
0: that
3: a pandemic thing that we have no sense of time? Because I feel like also that's an, a neurodivergent thing, which is just maybe with, with working memory where we're always like, how old am I? I always have to work backwards. Even today, I was like, what grade are my kids at? Like, I, it's <laughs> there's so many of those numbers.
2: I think the pandemic definitely made it worse, but I have always struggled with that. Like people ask me how old I am and I will either not know, or I will say something that's totally wrong and then be like, that's not true. Um, and it's, yeah, but the pandemic definitely made it worse because it compressed like three years into one. So, <laughs> right. Yeah, I know.
3: Okay. So, and you know, you had mentioned when you first reached out that you were, when you were diagnosed, it was a surprise to nobody. So what was happening? What what were some of the signs or what were some of the things that you related to the traits that you related to where you were like oh it's not just me it's adhd
2: so there were there were so many but um i think that the things that really struck home are the other are things that probably um made me feel the most shame um about like the the stuff that i was dealing with so I got fired twice and I joke about that a lot. And the joking is to cover up the extreme shame that I feel about it because it's just it's not it's not cool to get fired. Like no matter how no matter how entrepreneurs be like, oh I'm unemployable, blah, blah, blah. You know, that's not cool. So um so there was there was that. Um I had a had a lot of jobs, ever-changing hobbies and interests, that kind of thing. Accidentally becoming um a keeper which was is one of my husband's favorite. Oh, this is Vicky's latest ridiculous thing um I just I came home literally came home with a baby a wonky sheep and was like we have a sheep and he's just like right okay and now we have three sheep and it's a whole thing so um so stuff like that um where do you come upon a wonky sheep was he just on the side of the road no I went to I went to stay with a friend of mine um and she had she rented a cottage on a farm and so we were just wandering around and, and the farmer had just been lambing and we were oh how's it going and he's like oh it's great we haven't lost any this year but we might have to I might have to knock this little one on the head and he picked up this like adorable lamb like he's got a wonky leg and if I can't straighten it out he's going to be no use and it's going to be painful and all the rest of it and I was just like give him to me I will take him home um and so I did <laughs> um yeah just chucked him in the back of the car took him home and my husband's just like oh my good god what's <laughs> happening what is happening <laughs> And you can't have just one sheep because they're a flock animal. So now we now we have three sheep. So <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one thing. But just like my inability to be on time, no matter how hard I try, is that that is just I try so hard. I'm better at it now because I've got a lot of, you know, I've spent 43 years putting things in place to kind of, you know, make it make it easier for myself. But um, it was just that. Oh, I don't know. Just people would say, "Oh, you know, if you're late, it shows disrespect for the person that you're meeting," and and it's like it. it that's not it. It's not it. I, it, I, I kind of had this. Um, like if if something starts. So for example, this. Podcast interview, um, I put early in my calendar because it is the only way I was I was going to be able to get here. Um, I've got an appointment later, uh, which is also early in my calendar because I know that what I do is I see the time and I'm like, oh, okay, that's what time I have to start getting ready. And it's like, I cannot make my brain go that's what time I have to be there. It's like, that's what time I have to start getting ready. That kind of thing. Um, total time blindness. So I had a conversation with my husband. I thought everybody suffered from this, but apparently not. Um, and he would be like, okay, let's do a little experiment to see if you can work out how long something takes. It's like, what time is it now? And um, like half an hour ago, I'd kind of had a look and it was like 9 p.m. And I was like, uh, I don't know, like five past nine. And it was, I was like 25 minutes out. And so things like that, like little things like that, boredom, lack of object permanence, making me a terrible friend and daughter and sister and you know, all, all of that kind of stuff. So all, loads of things that once I got diagnosed was just like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Maybe I can stop hating myself quite so much and start figuring out what to do about this. Mm, Yeah,
3: I know. I feel like we've talked about that too. We're just like, none of
2: that is on the DSM, right? None of that
3: is, none of the shame, none of the emotional stuff. So was it like TikTok videos or where were you you getting this information that you were kind of like,
2: oh, that's really relatable? So I was getting it from... um friends that also um have ADHD um yeah TikTok videos um Instagram that kind of thing um I as soon as I get interested in something I get really interested so I just started reading everything and I was just like oh this is really interesting um that I relate to totally that I relate to totally uh, loads of stuff about the differences between boys and girls because it never even occurred to me when somebody asked me you know have you ever been diagnosed with ADHD and I was like how very dare you i absolutely have not um and i was totally affronted because i knew nothing about it um and i was just like isn't that's for naughty boys because when i was at school when you were at school as well i guess um it just wasn't a thing that girls had definitely it wasn't really a thing that kids had um and so it was just like no that's that's not me i'm not i was never the naughty one causing disruption in classes or anything like that and so i can't it can't possibly be me but as soon as i started looking into it a bit more i was just like oh that's really that's really interesting because all of my inattentiveness and and kind of hyperactivity just manifested differently so like I'm really super fidgety I can't rest it's like the whole driven by a motor thing I was like yeah <laughs> yes and it drives my husband up the wall it's like can like I would really like to see you relax every now and then and I'm like don't know how don't know how to do that and my version of relaxing apparently is not the same as as kind of other people's I think that the most relatable thing that I saw was um, a meme that was like I did not realize until today that when other people say that they're feeling lazy, it means they don't want to do it and they can't be bothered. But when I say I'm lazy, it means I've been trying really hard to do the thing that I want to do. Like, I don't know, clean my room, but I just can't. And like, I hadn't made that. I haven't made that differentiation. So like I would I would be like, oh, I'm really lazy because that would that would be what I would see other people, you know, or they're just sitting on the sofa doing nothing. They can't be asked to do the thing that they wanted to do. Um, but for me, it would be like I'm in my head. I'm like screaming at myself to do the thing that I want to do. And it's I kind of likened it to, it's like an extremely heavy and um, angry bear sitting on my chest, not allowing me to get up and do the thing that I want to do. And so that for me was a real like, oh, That was exciting to read because I was like, maybe I'm not like a lazy trash panda after all. Maybe there's something else going on there.
3: I think I've actually used that phrase called lazy trash panda. I feel like this is... What always used to confuse me about a diagnosis of depression, too, right? Which was never feeling like it fit. And so many of us are diagnosed with depression. And I think we genuinely have it. I mean, I think most of us have the shame and the what's wrong with me and I'm a terrible human and all of this stuff that feels like depression. But for me, it was never the lack of desire. Like you said, it was the desire to do all the things, the extreme like excitability and desire and ideas and wanting to do all these things. But just feeling like there is a giant bear on my chest or just feeling like I don't know where to start. I can't do it. Like getting in my own way. The paralysis was much more relatable than just the lack of lack of desire. And so that never felt like depression to me. And I, you know, and was always sort of very confused by, like, what is that? Like, always, like, is this a learning disability? Or what, you know, why is there that I didn't really understand or even know what executive dysfunction was, it wasn't a term I had ever heard. Or if I did, I hadn't taken note of it uh, until until my diagnosis. Yeah.
2: And it's such a weird thing to describe to people as well. If people haven't experienced it, they don't get it. They just don't get it. And it's so it's really difficult to try and kind of explain it to to people. Um, because they're just like, well, what do you mean? Just stand up and do the thing. And it's like, yeah, how do you do that? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> how does that work? And you know, there are there are ways that you can make it work and there is, you know, techniques and there's, I know some people find medication super helpful and so so there's all sorts of ways to to do it but it's like that initial if you don't know what's going on it just feels so weird it's like well literally what's wrong with me. You know, there's, there's obviously something wrong with me because everybody else is finding this thing really easy and I cannot get my ass off the chair. So so what is happening? Right.
3: right. Well, and not only that, but then I think p- paralysis is so different from relaxation. And so for many of us, I think we experience paralysis. We experience the idea of like sitting on the couch, scrolling our phone, not being able to do anything. And so for all intents and purposes, it looks like we're relaxing. And yet it's like, why am I so unhappy and and exhausted all the time, I should feel relaxed because I haven't done anything all day. And so it was like that feeling of, like you said, like relaxation to us looks very different. And I've kind of had to embrace that even just with going on vacations or like ways in which downtime and recharging and restoring ourselves doesn't look like lying on the couch. In fact, if I'm lying on the couch, there's I probably need help (laughs) to, you know, to get somewhere. Yeah
2: yeah exactly it's, it's so interesting because it's like in and I think part of the reason it's so exhausting when certainly for me anyway when I'm kind of sitting there and like doom scrolling or playing blemings or whatever it is I'm doing on my phone like I'm f- almost physically fighting myself and you know there's a battle going on in my brain and that's really tiring it's really exhausting and um, plus there's the whole like voice going you're a trash panda you're useless you're all of, all of the kind of internal negative nonsense as well that goes with it and and that that's exhausting. So it's like, no wonder, no wonder we're knackered all the time. Right?
3: I know. I know. I feel like there's so much to unpack, unpack when it comes to it, that feeling of exhaustion. And again, I didn't realize everybody didn't feel that way, right? Like, I, it's really hard to like judge your own experience versus what is a quote unquote normal experience. And I always felt like that with exhaustion too, which was like, maybe I, maybe I don't sleep well. I don't know. Like, you know, all of those questions where it's like, maybe I need a better night's sleep or maybe I need this. I remember like the first time it occurred to me how exhausting it must be to mask. Right. And that was something that was like, Oh yeah. Like we, we really, or even like you were talking about like how much, how much energy we put into showing up on time or how much energy we put into remembering things and how, like, it is just so much of that underwater paddling that nobody sees that we're like, oh, okay, yeah, it makes sense why I'm tired all the time.
2: Yeah, and you're right. The masking thing is, the masking thing is, I don't, it's, it's a thing. And it's like, I know that, because like, everybody has personas that they wear for different situations and, and all the rest of it. And so that's that's fine. But it's like, it's the... Like you say, it's it's the, en- the amount of energy that you put into appearing normal, you know, whatever normal is with my air quotes. And I, I didn't realise, I did not realise, I like still now think, where was I when the how to interact socially with people handbook was given out as, as a child? Because like I would watch children and I watch children now, like just interacting and like being really kind of eloquent and graceful and and you know they're they're doing their backwards and forwards and I'm like how do they do that because I just I used to stand on the sidelines and I used to study people it would be like I am going to watch I'm going to watch these people to find out what conversations they're having and how they're working I I would still say the most inappropriate stuff and I have a funny story for you if you would like to in a minute but it would be like They'll like, okay, so how is this interaction going to go? How am I going to have this conversation? Um, what am I saying? What is my face doing for a start? Because every now and then my husband will nudge me and he'll be like, sort your face out because he's told me that if I think somebody is an idiot, they can instantly tell. And so it's just like, i he finds it really funny. I love that. Sort your face out. <laughs> Yeah, he finds it really funny, but I'm like, this is gonna get me punched at some point. Um, So, (laughs) but yeah, it's just like the amount of energy that goes into, and I don't know if this is the same for all ADHD people or if it's just me, but like, just trying to figure out how to be in a group of people, like when to talk, when to not talk, when to give an opinion, how to not overshare, like, I missed, I missed that lesson. Yeah, it's just, it's very tiring.
3: (laughs) Well, and not only that, but the hangover that comes after conversations, right? Where the overthink of like, oh, I can't believe I said that. What did that mean? What was their reaction? What are they going to think? Like, I feel like, especially with oversharing, right? Where I come away from conversations and for three days, I'll have a hangover of just replaying it and all the things I did that I was like, what were you thinking? Why did that come out? You know, it just... (laughs) So wait, I want to hear your funny story.
2: <laughs> oh my god! Okay, so this is this is a few years this a few years ago now, and we were on holiday with a group of friends on a climbing holiday on a Greek island. Um, I used to do rock climbing, and we <laughs> we had been talking about how when you're a kid, adults would say that thing where they're like, "Oh, you you eat so much, you must have hollow legs." You know, where do you put it all? You must have hollow legs. And about 10 minutes later, because I was still, my brain was still mulling over the possibilities of having hollow limbs and for food storage um, kind of solutions. Um, and one of, our, one of our friends had said, oh, I'm, this is so delicious, but I'm so full, I can't eat anymore. And so I just said, why don't you open up your legs and just stuff it all in? And the whole, like, the whole table there was like silence for about 30 seconds as everybody just looked at me and I was like, what? And then somebody repeated it back to me and I was just like, Oh, that's not at all what I meant. And kind of everybody else had obviously moved on with the conversation, and I was still thinking about hollow legs. And then what came out of my face did not resemble what I meant to say. <laughs> it's just like that still that still wakes me up at at three a.m. And that was that was like ten years ago. Oh my goodness! <laughs> oh, that was funny. It's, it's funny now, but it's just that that is the kind of that is the kind of sums up the kind of struggle I have. is like, I will fixate on something from a conversation and that will go off in my head and the conversation will move on and I will carry on with, with what I'm thinking about. And everybody is like, what? <laughs>
3: well, not only that, I which makes me laugh at how many times there's like, there's no context to what you say, but it makes absolute sense to you because you're making these rapid fire connections during conversation, which I think is highly neurodivergent. But also just like, I feel like the one thing we all have in common is we all tend to say things like, does that make any sense? Right? Yes. <laughs> when I Because I'm not sure it makes sense to me. So does it like make sense to you? But the fact that we're constantly like what comes out of our face, as you just said, which is hilarious. But you know, it's like, is that at all logical? Like th- having no idea if this our stream of consciousness is making sense to anybody?
2: Yeah, but the phrase, does that make sense? comes out of my face a lot and um yeah everybody I know is really used to me saying that and they're like 50% of the time yeah it makes perfect sense and 50% of the time not so much
3: (laughs) right I know hey friend if there's one thing I've learned about ADHD over the last few years is that we can thrive with the right combination of accountability planning coaching, and peer support. Knowing all this, I set out to create the ultimate all-in-one coaching and accountability community for adults with ADHD or learning disabilities. I knew I couldn't do it alone, so I joined forces with one of my favorite ADHD coaches, Alex Gilbert of Capable Consulting, and together we launched the ADHD Lounge. The Lounge was created as a safe place for neurodivergent adults away from other social media, where we offer live group calls, co-working, and body doubling every weekday for accountability, focus, and skill development. We have weekly and monthly goal planning sessions to keep yourself on track. We also have one-on-one office hours with myself and Alex, and of course, friendship and lots of peer support. We have three different membership levels to meet you where you're at. So if you're looking for an affordable way to stay connected, productive, and accountable, while also having regular access to ADHD coaching and expertise then make sure to come join me in theadhdlounge.com. Again, that's theadhdlounge.com. And as a listener of the Women in ADHD podcast, you can get 30% off your first month with the code PODCAST30. So head to theadhdlounge.com and use the code PODCAST30 to get 30% off your first month. During the early days of my diagnosis, as I was deep into hyperfocus ADHD research mode, I kept searching for some kind of all-in-one, everything-you-ever-needed-to-know-about-ADHD-in-Women handbook that I could reference and keep at my fingertips, but I never really found anything that suited me. That's why I've taken everything I've learned about ADHD in women and adults who are socialized as girls, and I've gathered it into a concise, easy-to-access, self-guided, and self-paced course so you can feel like you've got everything you need at your fingertips. It's called Hey, It's ADHD, and it has everything you need to start loving your brain and living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. I built this course to be helpful wherever you are on your ADHD journey. I am so excited to finally be able to offer this course, and I truly hope this will help you develop a deeper understanding of your ADHD brain and how to embrace it as you build yourself a toolkit for your own life. So head over to womenandadhd.com and click on the Hey, It's ADHD course tab for more information and to get started you know, I was just reminded of when my daughter was in maybe second or third grade, she wanted to call somebody on the phone and she had never used the phone. I mean, she really hadn't talked on the phone much. And I didn't realize that speaking on the phone was an acquired skill, or at least it was in my household. And so we had to sit down and go, and we practiced phone conversations and we practiced like, if this person says this, what do I say this? So we had all of these like scripts that she was memorizing. And at the time, I didn't real like, neither of us was diagnosed with ADHD. We're both self-diagnosed with autism. So it was like, I didn't realize what a neurodivergent experience that whole thing was at the time. It, it, to me, I was like, oh, I didn't realize that people have to do this, but okay, here we go. And, like, sitting down and being so panicked and also, like, methodical about social interactions that now I look back and I'm like, oh, yeah, the signs were there all along. <laughs>
2: Yeah. So do you find like, do you find phone calls difficult and stressful? Oh my God. Yeah.
3: Especially if somebody just calls me out of the blue, I won't answer the phone. And and, and I find that strange because like, a generation ago, we all just had a one phone in our house that we, you know, it would ring and everybody would be excited. You'd be like, we'd have no idea who it was. And that was how people existed. And now I'm like, oh, no, like we need to arrange ahead of time. If we are going to talk on the phone, I need I need warning. I need mental preparation. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah same because like i obviously i, I remember how this weird generation that we are that is like remembers life pre-internet and also kind of post-internet and it's just i miss people not knowing where i am every hour of every day, but, <laughs> a, a but it's like yeah i just find like i will literally glare at my phone if it rings i will be like how dare you like, it's such an event and, then- <laughs> an and I get really stressed about it and then if I know somebody's gonna ring I will go into waiting mode for a start because that's the thing that I do um and then I will sweat a lot um and then I will babble and then when it comes to say goodbye I will either just put the phone down because I don't know how to end it or I will still be there on the end of the phone, being like "Hey, bye 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 K, k, bye, okay, <laughs> bye. <laughs> it's just like the whole thing and I do the same thing on zoom calls as well so look forward to that at the end of this call.
3: I was going to say, I should do a montage of the end of every interview I've had on this podcast, because there is always that awkward, like, over goodbye, which is like, okay,
2: then, okay, then, all right, goodbye. (laughs) Please turn that into, like, a reel or something. Right? Seriously.
3: But yeah, it is fascinating, just thinking about, like, how this diagnosis is so eye-opening, right? And it's so, that in itself, I think, is really difficult to articulate to people who, you know, especially if you're like, oh, everybody, when I was diagnosed, people were like, oh, yeah, I get that's not a big surprise. But like how, to even explain to other people how life-changing this
2: is. Yeah, because I've had people say, you know, well, why do you need a label? You know, why is, why is that useful? And I was like, well, A, it's not a label. It is what it is. And B, it just allowed me, and I'm still working on this, but it's allowing me to let go of so much shame about who I am and what I've done. Because, you know, this, I mean, everybody's got stuff in their past that they're not proud of, but like, I've done stuff that I'm really not proud of. And I'm not excusing it at all, because I don't think there is, you know, there's not an excuse for bad behavior. But now I understand it, I can start to let go of the shame that I've got around it and be like, okay, well, I screwed up, everybody screws up. And so now I know why I can never make that kind of mistake again. Like I'll make new ones, I'm sure, but I can, you know, I'm never going to go back and make that one again. And so for me, getting the diagnosis was just, it was really, it was, it was a bit of a rollercoaster. It was really upsetting. I cried a lot. I still do sometimes when I, when I kind of think about it. Um, But it was also such a relief because I was just like, like I said before, it's like, I'm not, I'm not a trashy person. I didn't do the things that I did on purpose. I don't, annoy people on purpose I don't none of this stuff is on purpose and it's just allows you to let go of that kind of that part of the identity and have this other identity instead which I find I find really really helpful I know that not everybody does I've got a couple of friends who are who suspect they have ADHD and they're like they're not interested in getting a diagnosis but they're also a lot younger and they kind of had an upbringing where they were allowed to be who they were and like think times have changed since I was a a kid since I was young, and so they've had a lot more freedom to be able to, you know, they weren't forced to sit in a classroom all day doing schoolwork that they hated. It's like they had they had the freedom to go and do other other stuff to kind of use their energy and use their creative energy in different ways. And so they they don't really find it useful to have that um, diagnosis, which I totally get, totally respect. But for me, it really has been a game changer because it's just it's just been a relief and you know, and trying to explain that to other people is sometimes really frustrating. So I've mostly given up trying. It's like, well, you know, you do you, I'll do me. That's fine. And like trying to talk to my parents as well, because they are, I don't know how much of this to say on a, on a podcast, but it's like, uh, but they are for sure. Like my Nana, for example, she she died a few years ago, but like she was known for hating loud noises. And now I look back on her and who she was and her personality. And, you know, quite a lot of members of my family are a bit weird. Um, and I mean that mostly in the nicest possible way. And it's just like, it, this stuff runs in families. And so to be able to know why and why we struggle with certain things and who in your family might be neurodivergent, I think it's just super useful because if I'd known, like my mom is like, well, isn't everybody like that? And I'm like, no, but that's what people with undiagnosed things say to their children. So
3: <laughs> <laughs> I totally agree because I have a 16 year old daughter, and it's one of those things where I spend a lot of mental energy thinking about what is ADHD, what is autism. Where's the overlap? Is this this? Is this that it's really important for me, for whatever reason, to categorize these things in my head and and to be like, what is causing this? What is causing this? What are we even talking about? Like, I feel like those are the questions I ask a lot on this podcast, which is like, what even is ADHD? Is it our brains that we're talking about? Is it our actions that we're talking about? Like what? Like I obsessively think about categorizing. And then they're, you know, and then I'll talk to autistic people who are like, yeah, that's, that's pretty autistic. But then I'll ask my 16 year old daughter, cause she's so similar. And we have a lot of the like very, you know, similar characteristics around rigid thinking. And, you know, for me, I'm sort of like, do you think you might be autistic? And she's like, I don't know, maybe like for her, it it's not important. Like she she's just is who she is. And, and I find it interesting that for her, she can live in that ambiguity. Whereas for me, ambiguity is torture. <laughs> and I need answers and I'm not getting them and it frustrates me. Well, and not only that, but like when you were talking about the the information of the diagnosis, one of the things I talk about a lot on this podcast is how it feels like I have notes in the margin, which is the name of your podcast, which I thought was really cool because that's a phrase I use all the time when i talk about what it feels like to have this diagnosis where I'm like, oh, there's little, it's like little footnotes to all of these strange behaviors that I felt a lot of shame around or, you know, or just confusion. Like you said, like um, a lot of these things where maybe somebody either has said, or at least I've been convinced that they thought I don't care about them because I don't remember things about them. Right. Or, or I'm late or, we're not communicating well. And then you start to question in yourself, well, do I not care about them? Am I a terrible human being? Right? Like you start to internalize those beliefs. And then that becomes, that defines you. And this is such an opportunity to, to start to unravel that and redefine yourself. It's like, no, I always meant well, I always had the best of intentions. Uh, and to be able to embrace that identity more than the sort of accidental asshole identity that I think a lot of
2: us had. <laughs> I love that accidental.
3: <laughs> if I could rename ADHD, that's what I think I would say a lot. Oh my gosh I love that. So now I'm curious because you have been coaching book writing. I want to talk about this we, um because I think it's so interesting to look at through a neurodivergent lens. And and I wrote a book and I've often talked about how the circumstances under which I wrote the book were so perfect. I don't know if I could ever replicate that. Because you've been doing this for so you've been doing it for at least a decade, right? How has your diagnosis changed your view of kind of what you do as a book writing coach? Or I guess let's even start with sort of your experience as a book writing coach. And you've noticed that there are neurodivergent approaches there is a lot of advice around book writing that is aggressively unhelpful to a neurodivergent brain. So, so I just want to know your thoughts about tailoring what you do toward ADHD and autistic brains.
2: Yeah, sure. I love your extremely diplomatic, um, aggressively unhelpful uh, comment. <laughs> there's a certain type of person is drawn to entrepreneurship and business ownership, I think. And it, it tends to, I think there's a, a high correlation of, of people with neurodivergence, but I had always attracted people with who who are neurodivergent and I hadn't really thought anything of it. Um, I was just like, oh, all of these. I'm I'm a weirdo. All of these weirdos are also here, and that's great. And because I I by the way think the term weirdo is great. I love it. I wear it as a badge. But yeah, and so I I think they came to me because I've always done things a little bit differently. So the the kind of tradition, like you say, there's a lot of advice out there that I'm sure is super helpful for um for kind of normos. But for me, it was just it was just not. It's like oh, you know, you need to dedicate this like big block of time um to doing to doing this book, and it's like put. Put, exclude everything else for the next three months and get your book done and i'm like not even like normal people can do that like people have children and families and it's like always always rich white dudes by the way who give this advice who go off to a cabin for in the woods for three months right <laughs> right yeah and they've got a wife in the background doing all the stuff them, so they can go and do he's really pissed off <laughs> I'm like, i need a wife what is happening um so There's all this advice and I I can give you like my favorite one is, is um, the one that's attributed to Mark Twain, whether he said it or not, I don't know, but it's like eat the frog first. If you tell me to eat the frog first, I will do literally nothing all day because um, if you get me to do the most difficult thing without any kind of priming or anything else, ain't going to happen. It's just not. And not only will it not happen, but I will then feel like trash for the next few days because I will hate myself for it. And it's just like the whole exhausting head talk thing. And so I have invented what I like to call the dopamine sandwich, which is like slice of dopamine, frog, not frog, I'm vegetarian, slice of dopamine, horrible task, um, slice of dopamine, because bread is dopamine for me. I love bread. I feel sorry for people who can't eat bread. And so that's that's what I do. It's like, I don't know. It doesn't matter what the dopamine is. But if I'm like, right, I've got to do a thing that I am not looking forward to doing, let's say receipts for my taxes, which nobody enjoys doing. It's going to be, I am going to spend five minutes dancing to my favorite tune. or I'm going to stuff my face full of my favorite chocolates. or I'm going to play lemmings on my phone for 10 minutes, or I'm going to go for a walk. You know, I'll do something. And then I will ride that dopamine wave into the um, horrible, awful task and trick my brain into doing it before I've noticed. Because once I'm in it, I can usually focus um, long enough to get it done. And then afterwards, I reward myself. So it's not like the traditional do the horrible thing, have a reward afterwards. It's like, no, have the reward now and then do the thing and then reward yourself again. So and that's kind of one of the things that I think I bring to coaching that a a lot of people, you know, maybe people do it. But for me, instinctively, it was like, oh, if you're struggling to do a thing, I'm not going to make you sit in a chair and try and do that. That's that's helpful to nobody. and, And it will make you hate the task and, you know, you never get your book done. So it's that kind of thinking about how do people's brains actually work? And every ADHD person is different as well. So it's like, how does this person's brain work? What is this person struggling with? What is this person feeling when they're trying to do the thing? Like I have a process that works for me that I will adapt for people, but I will also create processes for people based on what they want to do and, and how they want to work. And another thing that I do is like, people think that writing means sitting down in front of a laptop and kind of tapping out. It's like, no, use the voice notes on your phone. I've got a client who is amazing. And she writes her books on her voice recorder app on her phone, whilst, or like tapping into a notes app while she's walking around the beach or whatever. And and that works really well for her. And people don't realize that they're allowed that they're allowed to do that. If they want to, if they want to write, you are allowed to do that. It's it's really cool.
3: <laughs> even that phrase, like that, you know, that permission to do things your own way, I think, is so indicative of how we've lived our lives for so long prior to these diagnoses, which is like trying so desperately to fit in with the common advice. And even when you were talking about tricking your brain, I'm like that. Even that phrase, I think, that we talk about our brain like it's this petulant immature roommate that we try to de- <laughs> that we try to deal with all the time and try to trick it to behave. But you're right, I think like there are there's so much advice that doesn't take into consideration that how fickle momentum is for our brains, right? And the fact that one thing will work today and it's not going to work tomorrow and we have to surf that. But yeah, like this assumption that you can just sit down and start writing is I think t- a total fallacy like that we there are ways in which we need to kind of build up like There's like an on-ramp to momentum. Uh, you know, it's funny. I was just going to say about the eat the frog. I did not know that was a Mark Twain quote. I would definitely heard that. It had never made any sense to me. And it was actually the Llama Life creators of the app Llama Life who used the phrase eat the cake. And it was the first thing. And um, Marie, who created the app, she was like, I'd never heard of that before, but I was just trying to think of like, what's the opposite of doing, you know, doing a fun thing first. Uh, but I really love the idea of a dopamine sandwich that makes... Perfect sense to me, and I think that's kind of how I operate throughout the day. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. There's, there's like another like you're talking about kind of the momentum thing as well, and that you know that that's the thing. But I think even even people who are not neurodivergent really struggle with this idea of like how to get started and how to do stuff because I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding of how inspiration and motivation work. Um, and this is like exacerbated for people who are neurodivergent as well. It's like people think, oh, I am you know I need to be inspired before I can write, and I'm like, that's not how this works. it's like inspiration comes from everywhere and you have to go out and make it and you can it doesn't have to be like I think people think it needs to come from a specific place or like it's bestowed by the the gods the Greek gods and you know the romantic poets have a lot to answer for and so it's like no you can you can go and do anything it's like for me writing is is not just the writing it's 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 the dopamine bit before it's like I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna do the thing that I find fun because I have ideas that way that's where my ideas come from it's like you move your body and your brain works differently And so there's that. And then there's motivation. It's like, oh, I don't feel motivated to write today. And it's like, well, then you're never going to write. Like, that's not how motivation works. You do the thing and then you you feel motivated to carry on. And I think people don't generally understand that it's like I have to feel motivated you know to to go to the gym or whatever it is that you're deciding to do it's like I'll go to the gym when I'm motivated it's like then you're never going to go you know you start doing the thing and then you're like oh actually I'm quite enjoying this and that's where the motivation comes from and it's like how do you the problem isn't the motivation it's how do you get started because the motivation will come once you get started and I think people don't understand that so like my job is always how do I get people started and like I've got so many different things that I can I can give, get people to try and give people to you know depending on what works for them one day or another and, and what doesn't work and it's just like that I think is is one of my biggest strengths is, is like I'm gonna look at I'm really I'm gonna really listen to people like I'm not just gonna be like I have this thing and this is gonna help you it's like actually you tell me things, tell me, I'm going to ask you questions that are probably going to make you feel really uncomfortable. And then I'm going to get you to try stuff that, you know, some of it might make you feel really uncomfortable. Some of it will work really well. Some of it won't work at all. Um, And there's that kind of permission to try stuff and have it fail and try stuff. And it, it doesn't work for you. It doesn't mean that you're broken. It means that doesn't work for you letting go of that shame as well I call them the bro marketers it? it's like oh if this thing doesn't work for you then you're just not trying hard enough and I'm just like <laughs> um you know that's that's such nonsense and it's so shamey and it's like well let's maybe, maybe your thing isn't that good <laughs> maybe your thing isn't that good or maybe your thing does not work for this type of person or you know whatever and so it's giving people permission to be like try things if they don't work doesn't it's not your fault not necessarily I mean you know there's a there's a line it's like if you're genuinely not being asked then I'm going to call you out on that as well but it's like if this thing is not working and you're really trying then we try something else and we will we'll find something that works
0: yeah
3: There's like this intersection for many of us where we're fiercely self-reliant, which I think comes from masking. I think it comes from difficulty communicating. I think there's a lot of reasons why we tend to want to do things on our own, which is like, I have a hard time explaining what I need right now, so I'm just going to figure this out on my own. But at the same time, really requiring company and conversation and coaching and help to get past our own selves. And like that feels so essential in so many aspects of life. And yet at the same time, I don't think we do that. Like, I think we tend to be like, oh, it's up to me. I got to figure it out. I got to I got to know what I'm doing before I even show up. And it's quite the opposite. I think like the, the faster you find somebody to step in and help you with this or the easier it'll be to sort of get out of your own way.
2: That's so interesting that you say that, because I've been thinking about this a lot. And at some point, I'm going to write something about it when I when I know more about it, and I could do more research. But I do wonder how much our Western capitalist system has contributed to just making these differences more pronounced and more difficult, because, especially in America, but also to um, an extent in the UK as well, there's this like individualistic kind of European... It's all about the eye. We have to do it all on our own. We are pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. And you go elsewhere in the world, and that is not a thing. And it's like communities come together. People help each other. People work together. And we've lost that somewhere along the way. And I just think that that, like this is a really unformed thought, but I just think that that really exacerbates the issues that we face, because I don't think the problem is with us. It's with the world that we are in and the box that we're trying to fit ourselves into. It's like the world has always had different types of people. One of my favorite neurodivergent people is Temple Grandin and she's like you know if there weren't autistic people there would we would still be gossiping in caves and she's totally I've totally misquoted her but she said something like that and, it's, and, and she's right and it's like the world needs lots of different types of people but it's set up now for a very specific type of person that really doesn't work for many people at all it's like most people can cope in it neurodivergent people really struggle in it and a very narrow band of people thrive in it and that narrow band of people they don't look like most of us and so I just think there's a lot to be explored there and as you know maybe there wouldn't be any such thing as oh people are neurodivergent and they're having issues if the world was different for us because there would be room for everybody right preach right yeah and and i think too it's it gets us to
3: a point where we feel shame around asking for help like we we've decided and not we as an individually we are have decided this for ourselves i mean the greater we but the royal we but like the this idea that It's a failure to ask for help, right? That we have to wait until we have absolutely are at our wits' end before we can invite help, as opposed to bringing it in even before you're struggling, like even before you've encountered paralysis or issues to just say, I anticipate that this is going to be hard for me. So I'm worth inviting help, right? As opposed to like, I have to somehow show that I have exhausted all of my own resources before I've asked for somebody else's because we feel like asking for help is an imposition. So all of that, I feel like, yes, I feel like it's probably the Protestant work ethic and capitalism. And I think it's more, you know, it's more prominent in women in terms of how we're socialized. And yeah, those are all those, those two, those are all the questions where I'm like, is, are we talking about ADHD still, or are we just talking about capitalism and and feminism? Right. Right? Um, Right. Yeah. But now one of the things that I always feel like I struggle with, with writing, because I used to be a much more prolific writer and reader when I was younger. And I feel that as I get older, I call it like too much information syndrome. Like if you were to ask me to write an essay about something I know nothing about, I would find that really easy because I'll be like, okay, well, I'll just have to go research it really quickly. And, you know, I think the less you know about something, the easier it is to write, but you can get into a situation where you know too much. And then it becomes really difficult to process where to start and like to organize those thoughts. And then you're getting your own way because you're like, well, there's always another side to that. And, you know, you start to argue with yourself. So that's what I always find really complicated about writing. It's like, especially when it comes to writing about ADHD, I'm just like, I, I, my brain is too full. Like, I don't know how to sort through that trash. What that has to be a common problem when it comes to especially writing nonfiction right like I feel like that has gotten worse for me as I've gotten older
2: yeah it is and I I totally understand because I I have a similar thing where I'm like oh I want to say all of the things I've got too much information in my head and it just becomes this kind of maelstrom of Nonsense! It doesn't make any sense. And so yeah, there's I mean there's a, f- a few things that I do, and what, one of the things that I do is I literally force myself to write stuff out. And like I, I don't allow myself to stop. So I will be like, I'm only for five minutes. It's like I'm not going to make myself do this for loads of time. But it's like I'm going to spend five minutes or ten minutes, and I am not allowed to stop writing. It's like I literally have to write whatever comes out of my head. And I found that for me, that can be a really useful way of like the thing that is important to me at the moment will come out. Like if, if I do that it will come out because I can't physically do lots of things at the same time. So that's, that's one thing that I, that I do that I find really useful. But another thing is, and I think a lot of people are surprised by the simplicity of this is just because you're not going to write about something specific now, it doesn't mean that you discard it forever. And so it's like, if you're having like, I have at least one notebook by the side of me at all times, like a physical paper one. Um, And so if I'm like trying to work on one thing and I have other things popping into my head, they go straight into my journal. Um, because then I don't forget about them. Um, they're there. I have different places that I can put them. I've got post-it notes. I've got like colored pens and I say I color code everything. That's not true. Just stuff has different colors and then I look at it. But yeah, there's, so I, I do struggle with that as well. I do struggle with the whole, I've got too much information in my head. And what I try and do is start wide and then narrow down Another problem that we've got with um with the modern world, I sound like a really old person though. Uh, with, the, with this modern world, is like everything is everything is so surface and brief, and that's I think that's why people shout at each other on the internet. It's like there's no room for nuance, there's no room for depth, and it's like all surface level hot takes. And so one of the things that I I do, I run this thing called Microbook Magic, I get people to write tiny little books. And the thing that I love about it is that that kind of forces you to go really deep and really narrow into one thing. So it's like, I've got this idea, I want to write about all these other things, I'm going to make the notes on them. But actually how deep can I go into this one single idea? And how can I narrow it down even further? And, you know, and then can I narrow that down even further? And then, you know, can I narrow that down just to one sentence? And maybe then I can start expanding it out a little bit. And so it's like this kind of expanding and contracting mushroom cloud of stuff. And out of it will come all sorts of other ideas for microbooks as well. But like, I find that drilling right down to the heart of something to be really, really useful, which I think can be like really useful for people with ADHD because we're really good at hyper-focusing on the stuff that we're interested in. So it's like, how I'm going to go down this wormhole of like, why do goats smell the way they do? And suddenly you're down to the goat smelling molecule, which is an actual molecule. And then it's like, oh, I can come up from that. Like, what else can you do with goat smell molecules? (laughs) (laughs) Right. I would much
3: rather write a book about that than a book about something I talk about all the time. (laughs) Uh, It's so true. Oh, gosh. And, you know, I feel like that was something that was very helpful for me when I was writing my book again, where it was like it was it was all about going going wide and then getting really, really narrow and going wide and getting narrow and and kind of taking myself out of the book and looking at it from very different angles all the time. But again, I don't know. It's one of those things I I think a lot of us feel like we've got so many books in us and there's so much we know and so we're so fascinated, um, but we don't know where to start. So that's where we need people like you. Now, do you do like, do you work only one-on-one? Do you, would you ever do like courses? Because it feels like a lot of this could lend to a lot of sort of guided journaling, guided work in a group.
2: Yeah, so... I always have like a thousand ideas for things that I want to do and then I have to run them by. My husband is great at reining me in. He's he's just like, he reminds me of things or he'll be like, come back to me in a week if you're still interested in it and I'll it. <laughs> um, But yeah, I do. I, I work. Um, I, I love working one-on-one with people but I like the micro book thing that I do, that's like a small group thing and it lasts for, I'm expanding it to, or six weeks actually but that's that's a small group thing and I like to have you know 10-15 people doing that at a time and that that is that's kind of a guided thing so it's I will give people everything that they need to be able to do it I will give them the guidance and there's group calls and and that kind of thing so yeah I I do I don't do any courses and part of the reason for that is actually because of the whole trouble that I've had with the this is the one size fits all and I haven't found a way yet to create I'm going to work on it to create a course that works for people because people's writing, like even n- not neurodivergent people um, are, they're, they're so, everyone's so different. Everyone's writing style is so different. Everyone's writing process is so different. I'm a bit reluctant because I've seen quite a few book writing courses out there that are like, this is the way you do it. And they either make me roll my eyes or give me the rage because it's like, well, quite often what people are doing is teaching other people how to how they would write a book. And that's not helpful. I mean, it's it's it can, it can it can be useful for people to read about other people's writing. Like I love reading books by like Margaret Atwood's book and Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. It's like this is my writing process. I love that. But nowhere in those books are they saying this is how you're supposed to do it. And and I think that's the, the difference for me. It's like I don't want to create something where I'm like, this is my process and you have to use this process because for me, that that was always one of the biggest problems was, well, this didn't work for me. And so what's wrong with me? And so I've been a bit reluctant to do it like that, but I am going to try and find a way because I feel like there must be a way somehow. But at the moment it's kind of small groups um, or one-to-one.
3: Yeah. Oh, now I want to take your course. Uh, <laughs> now, well, it's, you know, it's funny because um, the, the course that I had taken when I wrote my book, the, the single, biggest motivating factor was the fact that they there was a time, you know, deadline and if you have you had your book written and completed and published by the deadline it, they you know chose the 10 best books and you got your money back from the tuition of the course and that was the biggest motivator for me this was all before I was diagnosed but now I look back and I was like oh yeah that's that's totally what I would <laughs> you know, I'm I'm cheap enough that that was like such a motivator for me to be like I'll get all of my money back But there was the reason why they could do that is because so many people were in this course that they could afford to give 10 people their money back. And I just can't help but think about like all of the people that didn't get their book written and spent the money and still at the end of the day were like, oh, I guess I'll never write. You know, like, I I don't know. My heart goes out to all those people who who it didn't work for them, because I feel like you're right. It is such it's so individualized in terms of what's going to motivate you and what's going to work.
2: Yeah, I feel I feel like like I should say no shade to anybody who's running that kind of thing. Like people do their own thing and and all the rest. Of it. I, I think that's I think on in, in a lot of ways that's a really good idea. Is like if you if you get your book done, that you get your money back. But in other ways, I'm a bit like mm, not sure about that for for a variety for a variety of reasons. Um, but yeah, it's just like that. I don't know. My goal is always for people to get their books done, but also for them to be like really happy with them and proud of them as well. And so. Yeah, I just feel like I like to take a bit more of an individualistic approach than kind of have a lot of people come through. Oh, that's amazing.
3: So now is there, um, is there advice that you give to an aspiring neurodivergent writer who feels like they have a book in them and they're just like, oh, I'll never get, I'll never get past all of the clutter of my head?
2: Yeah, definitely. And I would say that it is entirely possible for anyone to write a book if they want to. Most people, like I'm going to be honest, most people are not going to do it. They're just not. Um, and if you look at the stats, like every almost everybody says they want to write a book. Almost nobody does it. So, um, so there's that. But I would also say you really have to want to do it as well. Um, because I think a lot of people come to it being like, oh, somebody's told me I should write a book, so I should write a book. Um, or I should write a book for my business because of this reason. Or I should write a book because of, you know, whatever other reason they're telling themselves. And it's like, well, I don't like the word should. Um, my friend Jocelyn calls it shoulding and, and masturbating. Um, and they're not, they're not <laughs> used to, uh,
3: must I haven't heard masturbate. <laughs> that's a good one
2: (laughs) yeah uh, all credit to Jocelyn for that one but um but yeah I just I just don't like that word it's it's shame laden and it's stressful and you know I I do really well with deadlines but they're deadlines because I want to meet them not because not because I'm being kind of pushed so I would say for a start how you know how passionate are you about writing a book because if you're if you're not then it's going to be really difficult for you if you get it done at all um and secondly, kind of really think about what, what you want. If you're, if you're dead set on writing a book and you really want to do it, it's like, what, what do you want to write? Like, what is enjoyable for you? Because I think quite often people desperately want to write a book, but then they start on something that doesn't light them up. And so that, again, it's always going to be difficult. And I find the people that do the best are the ones who are willing to um, really look at what they want to do and what they want to say and how they want to say it, and are also willing to write an absolute pile of shite frankly, because like, that's the other thing is like, we set out, we we look at people's finished books and we're like, oh, they wrote a book. I must write a book like that. And it's like, that is not what the book looked like to start with. The book looked like a big pile of poo. (laughs) I can guarantee it. I always say to people, because this is one of the biggest things that gets in the way, people will say they haven't got time, they haven't got this, but I think a lot of the time it comes down to, I'm scared it's going to be rubbish. And it's like, yeah, your first draft is going to be rubbish. I'm just going to say that right now. It's going to be rubbish. So instead of making you feel bad, why don't you set out to write a big pile of crap? Like, that's what I say to people set out to write a big pile of crap doesn't matter if it's a mess doesn't matter if it's all over the place. That's, you know, we've got plenty of time afterwards to come and do things. I can't remember which writer said you can't edit a blank page, but it's true. So like, give yourself permission to be terrible at it to start with. And um, that's and that's where the fun is, because then we get to learn how to make it better. And that for me is where the joy is. It's like, yeah, sometimes I will write a really great sentence off the bat or a really great paragraph and I'll be like, that is great how it is. doesn't happen very often. And like for the rest of the time, I'm like, oh, that's, that's nonsense. But the idea is in there, you know, the idea is in there and I can pull it out and make it into something worth reading. So my biggest piece of advice is give yourself permission to write crap and then work from there. Yeah,
3: right. And I mean, I feel like we could probably talk for another hour about perfectionism and ADHD and masking and all of that. So you had actually mentioned in your Instagram, there was a book that had was the best book that you had ever read about overcoming perfectionism. Do you know
2: off the top of your head? Yeah, it was one of my clients. It was a micro book, yeah. And she wrote um, a little book called Stop Falling Short. Stop Falling Short with air quotes. I need to stop doing that. (laughs) Um, Stop Falling Short. And... But she, so the reason that I loved it is because she took it from an abstract concept because humans are not good with abstract concepts, most of us. And she took it from this kind of idea of, oh, perfectionism, blah, and put it into your body. And so she got, she, she gets you to think about what's happening in your body and use your physiology and your um, breath and your actions to, to change the way your brain thinks about things. And it just, I just loved it. It really spoke to me because I was just like, oh, I, I know what perfectionism is. I'm not interested in like more abstract psychobabble. I want to know what I can do about it. Um, and that was the magic of this book for me was that she, give, she gives you, um, it's mostly kind of breathing exercise, but also kind of a few thought experiments, a few little bits and pieces to do. There's not too much stuff to do. Um, she wanted to keep it really light and simple. Um, but the, the core of it is, you know, change, change the way you breathe and change the way you're, you, you know, you are in your body to help you to, Shift the perfectionism thing out, and I'm explaining it very badly. It's a very good book.
3: <laughs> Are the micro books for sale? Like, could I find it on on Amazon? Or... Yeah,
2: it's, it is on Amazon. I bought it from I bought it myself from Amazon. So yes, um, her name is Jana McWhee.
3: Uh, I'll put a link to that as well as your. You have several books too that we can find on your website, right? What is the significance of tiny beetle steps?
2: <laughs> oh, okay. So yeah, this. Right. So people often say This is
3: your her Vicky's Instagram account, by the way, sorry. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> so people always say, I'll start with baby steps, but baby steps are actually quite big. And I think for a lot of people, if you if you're like learning something new And especially if you've got the curse of knowledge, as you've already mentioned, it's like, you know, all this stuff, you forget what it's like right at the beginning. And so I'm like, how, like, make it, make it so tiny. You can't fail. Like if if you're really struggling and this goes back to, and I I can't remember her name, but um, she wrote a book called the science of stuck, which I heard on the, you are not so smart podcast. This is where I buy all my books from listening to podcasts. Um, And she talked about, and I loved it because she articulated what I had been thinking was if you're stuck, like procrastinating or whatever, Just move. Like it might be just shift face in another direction. It might be cross your legs one side to the other. It's like, don't try and climb the mountain from being on the sofa because it ain't going to happen. So her, her thinking is movement changes your brain, right? The, changing your state changes your brain, gets you unstuck in that way. And so that was my thinking behind, that was always my thinking behind tiny beetle steps. It was like, don't, don't try and do it in baby steps. They're too big. It's like, what is, the, what is the tiniest, tiniest step that you can possibly do? Make it so small you can't fail.
3: I love that. That's awesome. Okay, well, we're gonna have a long list of links uh, for books to put in the episode show notes. I love that. Awesome. Okay, so what is Moxie Books?
2: So that is my, um, it's my trading name. um, And also my publishing imprint for my books as well.
3: So wonderful. And now if somebody wants to work with you one on one, there's a lot of information on your website. Is that the best way to reach out to you?
2: Yeah, best way is to um, email me, vicky at moxiebooks.co.uk or DM me on Instagram or um, LinkedIn is probably the best place to find me um, or fill in my contact form on my website.
3: Awesome. Well, what a, it's incredible service. And I, I feel like very grateful that that, that this sort of coaching exists because I I think it is really important for us to get past, get out of our own way, but also to realize that it's not something we're going to miraculously figure out how to do on our own. So stop pretending that you are. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, No wonder. Okay. So now before we go, can you, do you have an alternate name for ADHD if you could rename it?
2: Yeah. There are bees in my brain. Oh, nice. (laughs) It's a like constant buzzing, and they're all flying in different directions. So. <laughs> See, that is something I would have related to if somebody had asked me,
3: do you know, do you think you have ADHD? If, we, if I knew it was, do you think you have bees in your brain? I'd be like, uh-huh, yes. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, that's a good one. Yeah, I, I definitely lean toward those ones that are much more literal than, you know, the, the clinical ones about executive function and and regulation and that's I was like that I never would have related to any of that before my diagnosis but if you told me that like I constantly feel like I'm forgetting things and there's gnats flying around my head I would have been like yeah that describes my experience
2: yeah that's like the very name is like deficit and disorder I am a deficit and I am disordered and I'm like no I am not a deficit I'm awesome and the world is disordered yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I love it
3: um, well thank you Vicky this has been great I um, I feel like I laughed a lot this has been really delightful thank you so much and uh, yeah thanks for sharing your story too it's been
2: lovely having you oh thank you so much for having me on I've had an absolute whale of a time and I really I love your podcast so much it's really helped me so very much so thank you oh
3: thank you here's the, where we awkwardly say thank you over and over again <laughs> yeah like thank you no thank you no thank you <laughs> there you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. If you'd like to find out more about me and my coaching programs, head over to womenandadhd.com. If you're a woman who was diagnosed with ADHD, and you'd like to apply to be a guest on this podcast, visit womenandadhd.com slash podcast And you can find that link in the episode show notes. Also, you know, we ADHDers crave feedback. And I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple podcasts or audible. And if that feels like too much and I totally get it, please just take a few seconds right now to give me a five star rating or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency and they may be struggling and they don't even know why I'll see you next week. When I interview another amazing woman who discovered she's not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD. And she's now on the path to understanding her neurodivergent mind and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then.